consideration this evening as we seek the Lord's guidance is in Philippians and chapter 3, the epistle of Paul to the Philippians, chapter 3 and verses 7 to 11 particularly. Philippians 3, beginning at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Imagine that you are at a question meeting. You know what a question meeting is. We still have those at times of communion, particularly where text is given out and where certain people are asked then to speak to that text or that passage as it bears upon their own Christian experience. Except you're in a prison as you're actually at this question meeting. And there's only one person going to speak. He's going to open the question, explain it, apply his own experience to it, and then close it. And that man is the Apostle Paul. Because he wrote this letter to the Philippians from prison. He was shut up, incarcerated for uh, his uh, faithfulness to Christ. And as he wrote this epistle to the Philippians, so here in this chapter, he is effectively giving his testimony. He's talking about his experience of an encounter with Christ. Now, as you know, we've been looking at encounters with Christ from the Gospels so far, various people who had that sort of meeting with Christ that changed their lives in whatever way is described uh, for good, uh, changed them either spiritually or uh, usually physically as well, where miracles took place. And we've seen something of how these, uh, how these encounters have so much of a spiritual meaning for us and so much to teach us in regard to our own relationship to Jesus. And here is Paul giving his testimony, which is effectively his own uh, recollection of that encounter with Jesus that we read of as that's described in Acts chapter 9. That was his encounter with Jesus. That's when he met Jesus for himself. That's when his life took a huge change for the better. That's when he was called to be an apostle. That's really what set him on the road to be the kind of person he became as one of the great disciples of Jesus Christ. He didn't deal in this with his call to be an apostle. Sometimes you find that in his epistles that he sets out to describe something of the way God called him to be an apostle and the purpose for which God called him, which was, of course, to preach the gospel, to witness to Christ in the way that we find described in various places and especially in his own epistles. Well, it wasn't his call to the gospel that he actually set out here in this passage, but his conversion, his encounter with Christ and what that did for him, the change that that brought into his life 
and how as he looks back on it he is here saying this is really my great gain because what he's doing is as we'll see he's setting out that experience or that reflection of his encounter with Jesus by way of loss versus gain or by way of profit and loss you might say he's really using language that's often used to describe account books or stocks and shares um, so that there's comings and goings, ups and downs, losses and gains. He's using that sort of language so that spiritually he's really saying to us, this is how I used to live and I thought that was my great gain. I thought that's when and how I would really have acceptance with God, that that was how to be righteous in the eyes of God. But when Jesus met him, that all changed. We'll see how that was. So I want to look at it under uh, two headings. First of all, the old life, which really you could say is summarized uh, here in uh, verse 4, um, which is where he's talking about confidence in the flesh from verse 3 onwards. Though I myself have confident reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he describes his own pedigree or background and in fact something of what he himself was up to, what his life was about up to the moment that he met Jesus. So confidence in the flesh, you could say, we'll see something of what that means by the verses that are around it, but that phrase, confidence in the flesh, you could say really summarizes what Paul's life had been up to that moment that he met Christ. And so the old life, confidence in the flesh, equals loss. Then he moves on to the new life, which you could say is summarized by being complete in Jesus Christ equals gain. He's putting the two side by side and he's saying, this is now the way things have fallen out. What I once thought was my gain, I now count but loss. And I do it because I've discovered something much better. God has brought me to know Jesus Christ and that's my great gain. And everything I once counted as my gain, I now count but loss. I can see that there were no use to me whatsoever for righteousness, for acceptance with God. So these are the two things, briefly, as we'll see him uh, here reflecting on and recollecting his encounter with Jesus. The old life, confidence in the flesh, equals loss. And so from verse 4, he's, he's talking about this reason that he has that he had for confidence in the flesh. Now, um, you've probably heard about um, in books about the great stock market crash of 1929, which really led to the Great Depression in America particularly, which lasted for a decade, from 1929 through to 1939. And in, in, in a very strange way, it was really uh, the breakout of the Second World War that brought the American industry uh, back into some sort of production whereby things picked up again. Anyway, that's by the way, but that huge stock market crash of 1929 left many people with stocks that were really worthless. They used to be worth a lot of money, and after the crash they really just plummeted in value and were left pretty worthless. And that, in a sense, is how Paulus, we're saying, is looking at uh, the stocks of his, uh, his spiritual stock, if you like, before and after he came to know Jesus. He goes over his pedigree, 
He says of himself, this is the reason I had for confidence in the flesh. I was circumcised the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel. Of course, that's the covenant people of God. I belong to the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's the summary of his confidence in the flesh. That's what he was like before he came to know Jesus. And you see he's saying here, if anyone else has confidence, a reason for confidence in the flesh, I more. You could say that this man really, amongst all uh, the other people in the world of the time that uh, certainly knew him, he was known as somebody who was absolutely scrupulous in regards to the law of God, in the way that he sought to please God. And of course it went as far as he acknowledges here, thinking that he was doing God's will of persecuting the church. That's how committed he was in the way that he saw things then to serving God, to have a righteousness in God's sight. That's how he describes his confidence in the flesh. From his background, from his being a, a, a child of Israel, from his, the work that he was doing, from everything he was involved in. His stock was really high. You could say that he had a five-star portfolio. As he looked then upon his own life in relation to God, he had that confidence. This is my stock and look how high it's riding. It's really of huge value. I'm doing all of this that God requires of me and therefore I'm bound to be righteous. I'm bound to be acceptable to him. Whoever else is or isn't, I'm certainly surely acceptable to God. How could it be otherwise when I'm doing all of this in seeking to please God? And then he met Jesus. And his stock crashed. He realized that the things he was putting his confidence in, his trust in, in order for him to have acceptance with God, were valueless to that end. That's why he says, I now count these things but loss. Whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. For the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain crash, that I might gain Christ. He crashed, his stock crashed, and he realized that he was actually morally and spiritually bankrupt. There was no value to his endeavors after righteousness by putting confidence in his own ability in the flesh, he was a bankrupt. He came to realize that these things actually were rubbish. Now, he's not denouncing uh, being a Jew. He's not denouncing his background, not describing his, uh, his pedigree or his race there. Um, when he says, I count them as rubbish, the word rubbish is um, word's quite difficult to translate. It's in different translations. Um, but it means... Um, Something like what was left over and was thrown out to the dogs. Valueless as far as using it for food was concerned. So it was thrown out to the dogs. I count, he says, what I was doing then for righteousness in those sort of terms. I count it as something you should throw to the dogs. It was no use to me whatsoever. Although I once thought it was the way to live. It was, in other words... His self-righteousness. The thing he once saw was really 
full of meaning and full of uh, achievement and the way to righteousness. I now count but rubbish to be thrown to the dogs. You see, it's interesting, isn't it, that he says, I counted and I count. When he says, I counted but loss, verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. That's going right back to his experience, to his encounter with Jesus. From the moment that Jesus met him, from the moment they began to understand then how you come to be accepted with God, how righteousness is applied to a human life, from that moment he says, I count, accounted as loss those things for the sake of Christ. But he's also saying, as he's writing this from prison, as he's giving this testimony, indeed, I count, I am counting. And you can see from all the years that have elapsed from the moment he met Christ, and at least 20 years or so have elapsed uh, from then till his writing of Philippians, he's still counting that as loss. He's not changed his mind. And you can see from what he's saying there, I have no regrets about this. I don't actually see it as something by which I lost anything of meaning, of value. I actually gained. That's one of Satan's ploys, isn't it? And he tells you that to be fully committed to Jesus Christ, to be fully committed as a disciple, though that is something that is in your heart to do, uh, Satan will try to persuade you. Uh, you'll really regret that, you know. You're going to lose so much. You're going to have to give up so much. There's so much that you value just now that you'll have to forego if you really commit your life to Jesus, to Christ, to serving Him, to being His disciple. Well, just listen to what Paul is saying. I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. In other words, he's saying, the value that I put on knowing Christ far, far exceeds the value that I put on self-righteousness, on the life I once had. The old life is valueless. It's worth nothing to him because he now has Christ. He now has Jesus. He now has righteousness. He now has something really worth so much. Where does that leave myself? Where does it leave yourself tonight? Is the old life gone? Is the old life still the life you're living? It doesn't have to be a dramatic change in the same terms, in the same manner in which Paul's life was changed. We speak about that, don't we, as a Damascus Road experience. Not many people have a Damascus Road experience. Not many people have such a dramatic experience as Paul had when he was on the way to Damascus and he met Jesus or Jesus met him and stopped him and actually brought him up short and abruptly and told him, you're persecuting me. And from then on everything changed. I'm not saying at all that your life has to show that kind of dramatic change or dramatic experience. But change, yes. Change from the old. Change from somehow being of the mind that what you do yourself is going to be sufficient with a bit of help from God. Uh, Paul is saying, no, put that away from you. That's self-righteousness and self-righteousness is condemning. 
God disapproves of it. It's not just that he doesn't approve of it. He disapproves of it. Because it's contrary to what he himself has provided for us. And in actual fact it's sinful. And it's just our sin working itself out. And our trying to please God. So there's the old life. Confidence in the flesh. Confidence in seeking to please God by keeping his law himself. Confidence in actually meeting the terms of God as expressed in his law. Now he says, Thou, since then I've counted, and I'm counting, all of that but loss. There's no gain in it, so that I might gain Christ instead. That takes us to look at the new life. Whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth or in the older style translation the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord and it's really translated there pretty well as well the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and the first thing that strikes you there surely is that he talk, he's talking about a personal relationship he's talking about a personal relationship with this Jesus where knowing this Jesus is at the heart of and the crux of that relationship this is what has been this is what has replaced what once he saw as the way to righteousness the way to pleasing God the way to being accepted of God now he says knowing Christ is my treasure it's not just saying Christ himself is his treasure. Of course that's true. But the way he's putting it is the surpassing worth of knowing him. It's the knowledge that he has of Christ. The knowledge that God has given him. That's really he's saying what I now find so, so inestimably valuable. And that's why my life is now the way it is. And he's giving this Jesus his full title, isn't he here? Knowing Christ Jesus my Lord Christ Jesus the Lord the full title given to the Lord Jesus Christ but look at how intimate and how much it takes you into the personal knowledge that he has of Jesus where that word my where that possessive pronoun makes all the difference Christ Jesus my Lord what Jesus did on the way to Damascus as he met with with, uh, with Saul of Tarsus as he then was and took him uh, to know himself and actually took him into the custody of his grace you might say you look at the rest of chapter 3 of Philippians as Paul goes on and he says that Jesus has apprehended him he's laid hands on him he's taken hold of his life why has he taken hold of his life? so that I would know himself so that he would be my saviour my Lord you know, when he says Christ Jesus the Lord he means the Lord he means the Lord who is the governor, who rules everything, who is at the right hand of God on high, who is exalted, whose will governs everything that takes place in the world, whether people acknowledge it or not. That's when, going back to chapter 2. You can see there where uh, he is there talking about Jesus and describing Jesus in that amazing passage where he says, therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When you take in, as far as we're able to take in, the dimensions of that Lordship, 
And then you take in this little word, my. What a remarkable thing that is. That you can say of the immensity of that Lordship. Actually, He's mine. I possess Him through faith. I know Him personally. He lives with me. I speak to Him every day. He guides my life. I look forward to meeting Him. My eternity is all about being with Him. Christ Jesus, my Lord. Isn't that what you are aware of yourself? Or are you? Can you say tonight? Can I say tonight? I know this Lord as my Lord. I know this Christ as mine. And I have a warrant to know Him and to express it in those terms because He has changed my life. He's turned my life around. He's given me a living hope. Christ Jesus, my Lord. Open your own portfolio, as it were. Look at your life in terms of profit and loss. Look at where your spiritual stock is. On what is it based? What's its value? Where will it take you? Is it going to be sufficient to bring you through death and meet God's judgment and pass the test and end up in eternity with Him? If Christ is yours, then yes. That's where your stock is. If not, then you're still having confidence in the flesh. And when you come to that judgment, and I hope none of us comes to that day of judgment when God examines our portfolio, I hope none of us comes to the point where we then hear God saying, this is absolutely worthless. It's just about yourself. And instead that we will have what Paul says here, that I may gain Christ. So there's that personal relationship. But secondly, this new life where he's complete in Jesus Christ, he talks about the purpose that's behind this great change. And he's talking about it not just from the point of view of Christ's purpose in saving him and changing him. He's talking about the purpose he himself had as, as Christ gave him to, to, to receive himself. As by the grace of God, he took Christ as his saviour. Well, he says here, in order that. You notice these words um, that, um, that he mentions here. Uh, in, in order that. This is why I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that, near the end of verse 8, in order that I may gain Christ. And it goes on then, verse 10, in order that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Then verse 11, you could say, is following on, in order that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Now we're going to summarize that because it's interesting that you can really see that in terms of in order that I may be justified... That's what you find in verses 8 to 9. In order that I may be sanctified. That's what you find in verse 10. In order that I may be glorified. What you find in verse 11. These three hugely important factors in our salvation are really what Paul is saying here is the purpose why he is pleased now to forego all that he once saw as gain. Now that he has Christ as his gain, this is now what his stock consists of. I count all but loss in order that I might gain Christ. 
That I might gain Christ. That I might have Christ himself. But then he doesn't leave it at that. And be found in him. Not having a righteousness. Which is of the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. In other words he's taking us into our justification. How do we come to be established righteous in the presence of God? Righteous means meeting all the terms of God's own law, God's own requirement, God's own standard as to what a human life should be. That's in a, in a formal, legal sense. Before we go on to look at it in terms of our own personal life, righteousness or sanctification or holiness, there is this other side of it which uh, Paul, more than anybody else in the Bible, deals with. That's our justification. We are accounted righteous by God. We are placed in his book, if you like, as righteous. We're declared righteous. That's his verdict over us. How do you come uh, to be righteous? Well, Paul is saying not by having confidence in the flesh. That's what I tried. And I know now that was a failure. But I now count all these things but loss, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That's the confidence in the flesh he was talking about earlier. I know now, he's saying, how wrong that was, how much of a failure that is. Now he says, I'm righteous with a righteousness that comes from God that I have through faith in Christ. That's why he's saying, that I might uh, gain Christ and be found in him. That's an amazing thing. Because spiritually, when you come to be what Paul calls in Christ, through faith, by the grace of God, you come to stand where he's standing in relation to God. And where you find Jesus as perfectly righteous having lived the life he, did in this, he lived in this world, having died the death that is really God's provision against our sin and making an atonement for our sin, well, now the, that righteousness of Jesus becomes ours. It's imputed to a record. God actually has that written in his own record about us. And it's not just as if we'd never sinned before. There is that too. That's in terms of uh, not guilty. But there's more than not guilty in our justification. There is a positive emphasis of righteousness. Somebody can be uh, in a court of law and accused of something. And then actually found not guilty. That person's free to go. The accusation's gone. They can leave that place um, declared not guilty or innocent but that's not to say that he's declared righteous that everything about him or her is positively righteous without flaw but that's what it is with our justification that I might have this righteousness that comes from God the righteousness from God that depends on or is through faith so there's our justification as he speaks about it there. You see how different that is to confidence in the flesh, to self-righteousness. But then secondly, there's sanctification too. Verse 10. We're going through this fairly quickly. I want to cover the three points. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Now bear in mind that comes again from these words, in order that. 
Why do I suffer the loss of all things? It's in order that I may be righteous through faith in Christ. Why do I suffer the loss of all things? It's in order that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Because sin needs to be dealt with not just on our record, but in our persons. And where God deals with our sin on his records, he also deals with our sin in our person. Because as we are justified, so also by the same rebirth, we come to pursue holiness. We come to be sanctified. Sanctified in the sense of being made increasingly holy by the Spirit of God. Where sin is dealt with in our own experience, in our own fight against it, in our own seeking to be clean, in our lifestyle, as well as on God's record. And that's what he says here in verse 10. What do we need in order to be able to confront sin, to take on sin, if you like, to overcome sin? Or in the words of Romans, to mortify sin, to put sin to death? What do we need for that? What sort of power do we need? Well, Paul is saying my own power was obviously not enough, though I once thought it was. I need the power of Christ's resurrection. I need the power that overcame death. I need nothing less than the power that burst the grave apart. That's what he's got. See, that's what comes from being in Christ. He isn't just simply justified that's accompanied by being sanctified, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now, there's a mystery, in a sense, in that. Paul speaks about Christ dying once to sin uh, in Romans chapter 6, a chapter that deals so much with uh, sanctification. I'm only going to touch on it. It's rather complex. Um, chapter 6 of Romans in verse 10 uh, after having said a number of things related to that, he then says, For the death Jesus died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So also, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying, as Jesus died, and that was an end of sin as far as he was concerned, he was bearing sin and paying the price of sin up to that point, but from that moment onwards, that was it. He overcame. And in his conflict with sin, uh, that's it. He put sin behind him. His resurrection from the dead was the final part of sin having any more uh, place in his, his life. Never became, of course, himself sinful in behavior. But it's just the way God imputed our sin to him and paid the price of it. And so he's saying... There's a, there's a link between that in principle and the way that God brings us to know of a, a, a very definite break with sin and the power of sin. Uh, because when God deals with our sin and justification and wipes our record clean and attributes righteousness to us, that's always accompanied by the beginning of sanctification. Dealing with sin in us. Dealing with sin by us. And the power of sin working in our lives is ended. It's no longer in dominion over us, even though its presence is still there. That's sanctification, where Paul is here saying, this is where um, knowing Christ has brought me to, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection 
and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Sanctification involves pain. When you're wrestling with sin in your life, even as you depend on God and on the Spirit of God, it's not an easy matter. It's not something that you regard as just, well, just a little bit of effort here and there. It's a wrestling, it's a fight, it's a conflict to the death indeed. And that's what Paul is aware of. That's why he's saying in Romans it has to be a mortification, a putting to death of sin. Where does the power for that come from? It comes from Jesus himself. It comes from the power of his resurrection. That's the second thing then. In order that I might be sanctified. And finally it's in order that he might be glorified. In verse 11. That by any means possible or by any means I might attain the resurrection dead that's uh, that's the ultimate gain as far as he's concerned although Christ you could say is the ultimate gain because everything really is attached to and comes with him Paul is complete in Christ and as Paul sees himself in Christ not only has that brought justification and sanctification but it will bring eventually glorification he's looking forward to that day when after the resurrection particularly his very body will be glorified and be in the likeness of Jesus as well as his soul and you can see that in verse 21 what he's saying in verse 20 um, our citizenship is in heaven from it we await a saviour the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body that's the body we now have to be like his glorious body by the power of that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's what he's looking forward to. He's looking forward to being with Christ, as he says in chapter 1, as he leaves this world, to be with Christ is far better. He's no doubts about that. But he's looking beyond that, and he's looking beyond the resurrection that will take place at Christ's coming. And he says that's the ultimate gain, when he will bring us to be like himself, even in terms of our body as well, like his glorious body. And that's the ultimate gain for any human being. And indeed it takes you back to the way that we were when God created us. Let us make man in our image. So he created man in his own image, male and female he made them in his likeness no other creature has that pedigree has that privilege but as human beings you and I have and that image became defaced spoiled, violated when we sinned against God and Adam and God restores it but he restores it in a way that will never again be defaced when we are in Christ when we come to know him and the power of his resurrection when we look forward to being glorified as we are now being sanctified and are justified that's where Paul's portfolio will mature that's his investment for the future that's what God has given him as he measures the old life against the new what things were gained to me these I now count but lost 
for the surpassing worth value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Friends, do you know him? Can you say yourself tonight, I know this Jesus. And if you can't say it with certainty, surely you at least are able to say, I'm sure there's nobody here who cannot say, I do want to know him. I really want to be in him. I want to be in him with all that that means. Because to be in him means I have that standing in the presence of God. I am righteous as he is righteous. I will be sinless ultimately as he is sinless. And I have a power in my life now that empowers me against sin and enables me to live for his glory. Christ Jesus, my Lord. Is he? Your Lord also. May God bless these words to us. We'll conclude by singing to God's praise from Psalm number 32. Singing in the same Psalms, version Psalm 32. That's on page 38, singing verses 7 to 11. And the tune is Orlington. You are my hiding place, O Lord, my true security. You keep me safe in troubled days. You circle me with joyful praise when you have set me free. Through to the end of the psalm, the wicked wo- wo- wicked's woes will much increase. But those who trust the Lord, his covenant mercy will surround. You righteous, let your joy abound and praise the Lord your God. So these four stanzas from verse 7, you are my hiding place, O Lord.
side door here to my left after the benediction. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and evermore. Amen.